This is Choni's Circle. I'm Tamara Lubicki. I'm Rabbi Paula Rose. And on Choni's Circle, we are going to explore Jewish texts from the Torah through the Talmud and lots of traditional commentaries to grapple with climate change to help us process our emotions about climate change and about this particular moment um, and to help us try to make sense of the world that we find ourselves in. We're going to start today with an excerpt from Nehemiah, which actually... Tamara and I were talking on the way over here about how sometimes books like Ezra and Nehemiah get a little bit neglected in the Jewish community because for the most part, they're not part of our annual liturgical cycle. But sometimes there are important and meaningful things there. This is from Nehemiah chapter 8, starting with verse 14. They found written in the teaching that the Lord had commanded Moses that the Israelites must dwell in booths during the festival of the seventh month and that they must announce and proclaim throughout all their towns and Jerusalem as follows, go out to the mountains and bring leafy branches of olive trees, pine trees, myrtles, palms, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths on their roofs, in their courtyards, in the courtyards of the house of God, in the square of the water gate, and in the square of the Ephraim gate. The whole community that returned from the captivity made booths and dwelt in the booths. The Israelites had not done so from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, to that day, and there was very great rejoicing. Yeah, so first of all, what's your take on this idea of it had not been observed since the time of Joshua? Because that, to me, that was like the first thing that popped out at me as a very interesting piece. Yeah, there are like multiple things that are striking about that, right? So the first piece that is maybe striking for those of us who sort of, which I think is most of us, who imagine backwards of our modern Jewish life and ritual onto generations that came before us, right? It might in and of itself be striking that it sounds like Sukkot wasn't really practiced when the Jews were in exile in Babylonia, right? That's the captivity that it's talking about is Jews returning to the land of Israel after the Babylonian exile. So, like, okay, like, sounds like Sukkot wasn't really happening there, which in and of itself is kind of wild, but, like, maybe a little bit more palatable or something, right? But the implication that it hasn't been done since the days of Joshua is actually that for many, many, many generations, when the people were in the land of Israel, that it wasn't happening. And, you know, we don't have, like, a great historical record of this time, right? I don't I don't know, especially Sukkot um, are not, you know, the kinds of things that leave clear historical traces. Um, they're all made out of organic material. But there's something, like, kind of wild here about, like, pulling out a practice from the Torah that it seems like maybe had not really been practiced. And Joshua also, like, is a striking person because he's right on the cusp of the end of the Torah, and then moving into the prophets and moving into settlement in the land, right? Is this statement that it hasn't been done since the days of Joshua, does that actually mean that Sukkot was never practiced in the land, right? Mm. That people dwelled in Sukkot in the wilderness, but actually never did this sort of reenactment of building Sukkot, those like wandering wilderness huts, once they were actually settled in the land? Or is it suggesting that there was actually some time period where like that was continuing to be reenacted in the land of Israel, 
but that it only made it through Joshua's lifetime. This seems like a very interesting time period with Nehemiah. And like, how does he know that it wasn't practiced? Because it's how many years? Like a thousand or 500 years or? Yeah, it's hard to know, but a lot. (laughs) Many, many, many generations. Yeah. And he's making this statement about Joshua. Yeah. And it's striking also that the response is great joy. Right? Normally, if you are doing something, especially in the framework of religion, that hasn't been done for many generations, that might evoke great joy, but it might also evoke a lot of other emotions, right? Like, we don't hear about any skepticism on the part of the people. Any wondering, like, well, my parents never did this. My grandparents never did this. Like, what is this booth thing that you're telling me to build? What is this and why are we doing this now? The winners write history, right? We're getting this from the perspective of the people who are reinstituting Sukkot. So we should take that maybe with a grain of salt. But I wonder also if there's an inherently landed piece of this, right? If it's like obvious to the people that like this is something that happens when you're in the land of Israel, which again, right, it seems like there was a long time when they were in the land of Israel and weren't doing it, but that like, is there something sort of like inherent and obvious as they're moving back from Babylonia that yes, this is something that's worth reclaiming that makes sense and brings joy, even though we ourselves in our lifetimes never did it before. Right. Yeah. And I have several thoughts about what you just said, but one thing is you're talking about how it's not always so easy to introduce new traditions. And I assume this might stem somewhat from your experience as a congregational rabbi. And I think in my realm of trying to integrate environmental activism and Judaism and ritualize that to a certain extent, I think that's true of my experience as well. So often people will come to synagogue for a sense of comfort and like nostalgia sometimes. Yeah. And any kind of changes feel weird and they don't want to feel that weird feeling at shuls. Yeah, so the question is, how do you find a way of introducing these ideas in ways that people might not have had experience with, but Nehemiah is kind of like, well, you know, it's traditional. <laughs> so that's like one one way of doing it, right? Is like actually find the historical precedent and find places and tradition where actually Jews were very concerned with environmentalism and the environment. And I think that's part of what we're doing in Choni Circle is like going back to the text and being like, it's all here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I actually love... And this is sort of like a hallmark of Ezra and Nehemiah is that there's like this going back to the text. Like it seems like either the Torah itself or parts of the Torah, some scholars posit that it's the book of Deuteronomy maybe, that like somehow in some sense Torah was lost and there's this reading and learning and reestablishing and reinstituting that is coming out of this time. And I think that that's like potentially part of what makes this work. They're like, oh, vayim tzu katuv Torah, right? Like they're like, we found written in the Torah that was commanded by God at the hand of Moshe, right? Like the case for this is laid out really explicitly at the beginning. Hey, it says that we're supposed to dwell in Sukkot for seven days. Okay, let's do that. And I think in many ways, that's like our task of like, how do we also open the Torah and say like, hey, it says in the Torah, right? Like, how do we find an environmental ethos that's really rooted in Torah? 
because then then it's not new. It might feel different, and there's always growing pains when something feels different, but I think it's really different to say, like, here's a new invented thing that, like, we think is important and you should do it, versus actually we are mining through our ancient sacred texts with new eyes, and how do we apply what's in there differently? I will say a success story, I think, is actually Tubishvat, mm. right? For, like, a lot of Jewish history, Tubishvat was, like, not a big deal before modern environmentalism. Like, it was certainly about connection to nature, right? So I don't want to downplay that. Um, but it wasn't about environmentalism, because environmentalism didn't exist. And that, I think, has been really reclaimed. People know about Tubishvat, and people celebrate Tubishvat in different ways. And people really think of Tubishvat as a time of, like, tapping into a Jewish ethic around responsibility for our environment. And, like, that is awesome and actually really new. <laughs> right. But because it's tied to the imagery of the past or, like, a ritual that has continued but changed, it doesn't feel as jarring to people. Exactly. Because I can open the Mishnah and say, like, look, right here it says that Tubishvat is the new year for the trees. Right? Because we can, like, literally point to something going back to 200. There's a way to root it so that it's not just new. Yeah. The other thing that you had said that captured my attention was this idea of part of the reason you thought why people might have so readily accepted it and felt joy around it is it was about the land of Israel. Like they were back in this land and this holiday was all about going to the mountain and getting your lulav and, <laughs> and bringing it into your home and setting up an outside home that's like on the land itself. What occurred to me is there's a lot of discussion in historical Judaism about the land of Israel and about how when we go back there, we can engage in certain mitzvot, certain commandments, and like, it's a different feeling and different flavor to the religion when it can be in the land of Israel. And what occurred to me when you were talking is this is a celebration of land itself. It doesn't even have to be in Israel for us to just connect with the land. And what I'm thinking of is in my own sukkah, like we gathered all the schach from our yard. Like that's our yearly trimming event and everything from our yard then goes on top of the sukkah and it's like full and beautiful. And there's like this huge variety of leaves. And so I think there's actually a joy that we can feel connecting with the land and connecting with nature, even if there isn't like an associated like national ownership or the other elements that I think are being alluded to when we talk about like commandments or mitzvot in the land. I think that that's totally right. And I think that some of that significance is not only about like the land of Israel versus other places, but also about like the sense of being rooted in a place and connected to a particular place, as opposed to your existence sort of being like precarious and wandering and temporary and nomadic. And so being able to like actually right like trim the plants in your own physical space and put them on top of your own sukkah has that sort of rootedness piece, even in the diaspora. I think it's also striking 
this collection of plants is actually like very interesting to me because it feels like a combination of both lulav and etrog and also building the sukai right it's like go collect these plants and it seems like they're all actually to create a sukkah, right? Like the verse says that the reason you're collecting all of these plants is to create a sukkah. But three of them are three of the four species that we bring together when we shake the lulav in a trope. I'm not totally sure what to do with that, but that's also kind of striking to me that it feels like almost like a hybrid of those two rituals. Right, like they got those species, they went to the mountain, gathered all those leaves and branches and put most of them on top of their sukkah and took a few for the lulav. Yeah, I don't know, right? Like, you know, what is happening with the four species this time? I'm not sure. And actually about Etrog in particular, there's like a lot of writing and controversy because in the Torah, it just says pre-etz hadar, like the fruit of a glorious tree. It doesn't spell out like what kind of fruit that is. At some point that comes to mean the Etrog as we know it. But it's pretty clear historically that there's like some gray area there that's not like an immediate thing so that's also interesting right like that is absent here all of the species of leaves are here the fruit piece is missing just kind of interesting um, but I love the image actually of like building your sukkah out of those materials and like a reminder that those are the things that are available in the land of Israel now most of us receive our four species by placing an order for them and they get shipped to wherever we are and arrive in a lot of plastic and cardboard and styrofoam. But like, there's something actually really beautiful here about this image of like, no, no, all of those things are just available up on the mountains. Go grab some. So I don't know, there's something like interesting about that. Yeah, and the joy of this moment, I feel partly is from that communal going forth into nature. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do a psalm hike this Sunday. By the time this podcast is out into the world, it will probably have been in the past, but that's something we've been doing at Beshalom and with Ahavat V'Avadat Hadama as we go to a park nearby that's like luscious and full of trees and we sing and read the psalms in that context. And I think that being able to connect your spirituality or connect your religious ritual with physically being surrounded by nature, it's joyous and it's extremely meaningful. And I guess my hope with these psalm hikes is not just that people have a good feeling and have a good time, but that being able to like connect actual nature with spirituality and with personal growth or this deep feeling is a way of motivating people to save it. Yeah. And again, as you said before, environmentalism wasn't a concept at this time, but they still had a responsibility for the land. They still had to sustain it. Absolutely. I think there's something really beautiful and important about that because I think, especially like I'm still thinking about the four species, that there's sometimes a temptation to like check off the ritual boxes of like, okay, like I have the right leaves for this ritual and like now I can do the thing. Or even like, quite frankly, right, you have a beautiful way of creating slach for your sukkah, of, like collecting things from your yard. I have a bamboo mat that like, I ordered online. <laughs> and it's very easy, right? Like that's why I have that because the chagim are a crazy time. And the way that I get my sukkah up is by 
unrolling a bamboo mat on top. It would be a lot harder for me to pull that off if I was using sort of like more fresh organic material that I had to acquire and figure out how to get to stay up and sort of deal with every year. But I think that that's a loss. I think in some ways that like undermines the point that like I think we are supposed to have that really visceral connection of like Sukkot actually being a time where we're really acutely aware of our relationship with nature and our partnership with it and like the way that it needs us and the way that we need things from it and like going out to gather those things that are like mm. literally going to protect us for the week. That strikes me as like a really beautiful powerful spiritual experience both in and of itself and also right like you said in a in a way that would create responsibility for like oh I actually need to ensure the protection of these things for many reasons including that I depend on them <laughs> I don't know maybe I need to think differently about my class feels a little daunting I'm not making any commitments well you have a very specific time limitation during that season yeah but it's also fun to do as a family, like clipping from the yard and gathering stuff and throwing it on yeah. top of the sukkah. So I wonder if you could like clip a few things and throw them on right, top of the true. bamboo mat. That's true. That's true. <laughs> this is certainly not a uh, all or nothing kind right. of proposition. Right. And you reminded me with like checking off the boxes for your lulav and etrog, you need four different types of species like the four species and I'm curious there's like a lot of Torah explanation of like each thing symbolizes a different body part a different type of person this or that but it is like an interesting exercise in diversity and you know for me of course that calls to mind the diversity that's necessary to maintain an ecosystem where, like, if we just had plantations full of lulav palm trees, <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be a home for a lot of animals and a lot of plants. I think that's possibly a take on the lulav yeah. and etrog, is, like, that. it's important to have that diversity of plant life and thus diversity of animals and everything else. So I don't know, have you... <laughs> In all the myriad explanations for why the four different species. Um, so I haven't come across <laughs> that before. I have obviously heard, as you alluded to, the idea that these are sort of like a celebration of the diversity of humanity, of there being different kinds of people and actually the importance of like, A, we need all four, and B, we need all four together, right? Like we actually have to hold them together. I spent a lot of time this year reminding small children of that as I was teaching them how to, how to shake lulav and etrog. Like, they have this temptation to, like, hold the etrog in one hand and the lulav in the other and, like, shake them all over the place but not actually hold them together. But, like, actually, the rabbis are pretty clear that, like, no, like, the, the essence of the mitzvah is actually having all four of the species together and that, like, bringing together of diversity. And I think usually the rabbis think about that as human diversity, but I think you're right. I think it's actually a beautiful reminder of the diversity that we also need in the natural world. And then if we want to round out this episode, maybe in our fight to preserve our climate as we know it, to the extent possible, we do need a diversity of humans and a diversity of skills and a diversity of personalities as well. Absolutely. And we need to do it together. Rabbi Paula Rose, the Associate Rabbi of Congregation Beth Shalom in Seattle. 
This podcast is a project of Congregation Beth Shalom and Ahavat Ve'avodat Adama, our community's environmental group. Choni's Circle was recorded in Seattle, Washington at Full Track Productions. It was produced by Tamara Labicki and Dave Dintenfass. With original music by Ella Labicki Feldman. Thanks for listening and learning with us.